Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon, running single and holding down the fort for my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, who's off today. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. A Polish politician and prominent EU neocon has thanked the U.S. for attacking the Nord Stream pipeline network. Also, President Biden has trashed the One China policy and the New York Times continues its legacy as a promoter of imperial war. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Ray McGovern. He's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Ray, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Radek Sikorski is a uh, former, uh, current and former politician in Poland. He also happens to be the husband of uh, noted Washington Post writer and neocon Ann Applebaum. And immediately after the explosions on Nord Stream 1 and 2, he tweeted, thanks USA, with a picture of the, uh, of the damage. Your thoughts on this, Ray McGovern? Well, in one sense, it's unlikely that they clued Sikorski in on uh, on the plans of whoever did this. On the other hand, uh, Sikorsky is a pretty bright guy. He can put two to two together <laughs> before the rhetoric comes out, uh, trying to blame various and sundry. His impulse was to, my God, this is great. Oh, this is great for Poland. Yay. Thank you, USA. Now, uh, my my notion is that's uh, pure and simple hubris. And hubris often overshadows uh, a sensible way to proceed. This is crazy for him to acknowledge that, at least as he thinks uh, happened, uh, the U.S. was behind this. Now, the evidence is not in, and uh, I believe the evidence will come in. I just hope against hope that an independent unit can be assembled to examine uh, the, the evidence. So uh, at present, no one knows for sure, but there are those, of course, uh, blaming Russia. Now, those are the folks that are blaming Russia for shelling the nuclear power plant in Zaporozhye, where the Russians are guaranteeing the security of the power plant, where the Russians are, and uh, where the UN inspectors came in and were shells coming in they were protected by the Russians guarding the plant. They said copious thank yous to the Russians. But for some reason or other, Garland, the UN inspector couldn't figure out which was north and which was east. And which was, They couldn't figure out where the shells were coming from. <laughs> Give me a break, okay? So <laughs> we're asked to believe that the Russians are shelling their own troops, their own very, very precarious hold on this incredibly important nuclear power plant. Uh, we're also asked to believe that after the Russians uh, wrapped up the real Nazis, I mean, these are not neo-Nazis, <laughs> these are the real Nazis of the Azov Battalion in Mariupol, okay, this is a couple of months ago now, and took them to a safe place to interrogate them, and we're getting really juicy information out of them. Guess what the Russians did? They bombed the place where they were interrogating these people, right? And they killed a lot of them. And, you know, uh, the, the, the contrived story was, well, the Russians did this uh, for whatever reason, but they did it 
And so one would ask, well, if they want to kill all these guys, why did they have to go a couple of miles away and shoot some shells in there? You know, I mean, hello. Let me add this, Ray. If they wanted to kill him, why'd they take him prisoner? They didn't have to take him prisoner. They could have just shot him where they were and never bothered to take him in. Well, you know, uh, they're not only rules of war, uh, but they're always uh, they're also good sense. Uh, now, I was an Army Infantry Intelligence Officer. And I know that it's stupid in the extreme to go shooting people like that because they have incredibly value, valuable intelligence. Uh, here's, a, here's an example. On one of those islands in the Pacific, okay, a sergeant and a major are walking down after the battle. And all of a sudden they see this cave and they see this Japanese guy with a rifle. But the rifle's up in the air and he's got his hands up. And the sergeant says, should I plug him? And the major says, under no circumstances. Bring him here. They brought him there. Long story short, he was the code manager for the, uh, for the local oh. uh, <laughs> uh, Japanese. He was brought right back to Washington, and he was an incredible, lucrative, lucrative source for, for our military. So once you shoot him up, uh, you lose that, and not only that, but you encourage the the rest of the Japs that are the Japanese hiding in caves. They're going to fight to the death, so you lose more men doing that. So anyhow, that's why the Russians didn't shoot all those guys as much as they would have liked to in Mariupol. So those are two examples that I've used blaming the Russians for things that you know Russians really have to be stupid, like aim at their foot and and shoot at it. Uh, deliberately both of them okay so there's two examples now we're asked to believe that Nord Stream 2 uh, the most modern and the most possibly probably lucrative pipeline in in history as well as uh, Nord Stream 1 which is still operating that the Russians destroyed those things well I won't insult the intelligence of your listeners Garland to say that yeah I they can judge for themselves. They can judge for themselves. I think they're going to have a real, real difficult time deciphering how the West and how NATO has already begun to spin this. It's much more serious. This is really, really serious. I mean, will the Germans freeze this winter? There was a possibility that they could avoid that. And it was looking like the German populace were going to say, look, <laughs> hey, hey. Hey, uh, Chancellor, hey, uh, Foreign Affairs Minister, turn the spigot on Nord Stream 2. That's all you got to do for Pete's sake. We, we, we're out of blankets. Turn the spigot on. Well, now he turns the spigot on. All he gets is a bunch of coughing <coughs> at the end because the thing is destroyed. This is major. And so you have to look at who has the incentive to do this. <laughs> they ain't the Russians. Uh, it could be uh, one of the NATO or two of the NATO or maybe three of the NATO countries. I think the Russians are putting their finger on England right now. We'll have to see how it works out. Yeah, yeah you know, I mean, here's the other part of it from a diplomatic perspective, um, Ray. This was 
a very important diplomatic tool for the Russians. They could see that um, as long as that was there, there was an avenue for some kind of negotiations. The people in Germany were in the streets and they were and they were literally over the weekend, literally chanting Nord Stream 2, turn on Nord Stream 2. The next day it's blown up. And it was if you're let's say if you're a Russian diplomat, you're you're Lavrov and you're you're a diplomat. You're looking at that that saying, here's a nice bargaining tool. When this thing, when Germany gets uh, in a difficult position, we can say, okay, we'll turn Nord Stream two on, but you have to reciprocate by dropping this sanction or whatever the case may be, right? But it's a valuable tool. We're supposed to believe that the Russians got rid of their valuable tool one day after the people in Germany went to the streets to say, we want Nord Stream 2 back on. The one thing that the, the Russians would not do at that point is get rid of what was clearly an obvious tool that they would be use, able to use as a, a diplomatically to negotiate their way back, you know, out of some sanctions or something, Ray. Well, Garland, um, I, can, I can't argue with you. I think you've made the case persuasively. Uh, I think you've convinced us all <laughs> that probably the Russians didn't do it. Now, the, the thing I know a good, a good bit about Germany. I lived there for five years. Uh, I speak German, and I, I was kept in touch with lots of people there. Okay, and I've read a lot about uh, German history. So let me give you a real, real couple minutes, a little digest of where it lies. Now it's really the key. Germany is the key. What's it going to do now? The Germans know that the Russians didn't blame Berlin. They know or they suspect who did it. Now, what are Schultz and this crazy foreign minister, Bayerbock, what are they going to do? Well, you know, this all happened before. This all happened before. And there was a young lawyer in Berlin. His name was Raymond Pretzel. He was studying to be a judge, and he wrote a diary and was later published after the war. And what he saw going on in 1933 is what might go on now in Germany. I hope not, but here's how he described it. The sequence of events is, is wholly within the natural range of psychology. The only thing that is missing here in Germany is what animals call breeding. This is a solid inner kernel that cannot be shaken by external pressure, pressures and forces, something noble and steely, a reserve of pride principle and dignity to be drawn upon in the hour of trial. It is missing in us Germans. As a nation, we are soft, unreliable, and without backbone. That was shown in March 1933. At the moment of truth, when other nations spontaneously rise to the occasion, the Germans collectively and limply collapsed. They yielded and capitulated and suffered a nervous breakdown. The result of this millionfold nervous breakdown is the unified nation ready for anything that is today the nightmare of the rest of the world. He's writing in 1933. So what am I saying here? I'm saying that the Germans have really surprised me at how servile, at how, how inexplicably cowardly their political leadership is. 
I think the German people have learned a lot over the last 77 years since the war. And as you point out, they rose up over the last weekend and showed, look, we're not going to freeze this winter just because you want to do what the U.S. tells you to do. So will there be this breeding? Will there be this uh, this kernel of, of courage that was missing in 1933? I don't know. And that's what really bothers me because I love the Germans, but, uh, you know, I also fear them. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure that, uh, you know, Gorbachev, uh, I'm glad that he was spared having to look at this big mistake he made by allowing the reunification of yeah. Germany for God's sake. You know, I mean, I, I don't, I'm saying that in some jest, but I fear. But not really. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. And what you see now, it's got its uh, druthers together now, and, and it can do a lot of harm if it, it can't resist the um, the overtures of the U.S. to blame this on the Russians. The Russians have run out of patience. Witness what happened today with the accretion of the four new regions into, the, into Russia proper. Uh, the ball is in NATO's court. It's really in U.S. court. And the big fulcrum here, the big factor, in my view, is whether the U.S. can persuade the German political functionaries to keep acting like children. The next thing I wanted to, uh, and this is important because we've got to go to this, and that is Biden trashes what remained of U.S. one-China policy, strategic am a ambiguity. Um, in pledging to defend Taiwan from any Chinese attack, the president has made war with China much more likely. That's the other dangerous part. But, you know, Ray, you've talked a lot about how China and Russia are joined at the hip and how, you know, anything that goes down here with with with, with uh, Russia, China really has their back. And they have to because the they know the United States has Russia on the plate and, you know, they're in the uh, they're in the warming oven waiting for the, to be the second meal or actually Russia's an appetizer and they're supposed to be the main course. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's so, so strange. It's so ridiculous. Okay, so you look at the Chinese and how they look at the sabotage. My God, that can happen to China. That can happen to Chinese pipelines. What is happening in Europe can happen east, easily in the, uh, in the east of China. So uh, that's one thing. The other thing is they look at Biden and he looks steely-eyed and he says, with respect to the pipeline, we can stop it, trust me. Like a godfather, right? Mm -hmm. Now now he looks at uh, CBS and he says, we're going to defend Taiwan against any Chinese invasion. Trust me, okay? Well, what's that all about? Now, a benign explanation, uh, what the Chinese probably believe, is that, well, you know, the, the midterm elections are coming up in November. We hang on for six more weeks. Maybe he'll come to his senses. In any case, we ain't inclined to invade Taiwan. We have no intention of attacking Taiwan. So this is cheap rhetoric. They're going to prevent us from attacking Taiwan, which he never intended to do. And then they crow about it before the election. That's the benign interpretation. The other one, and I dare say the Chinese have to entertain this one, is that Biden is being advised by a bunch of nincompoops, uh, a bunch of people who don't know anything about China, uh, anything about the relative power, uh, power 
balance to the degree there still is a balance in that part of the world and refuse to recognize that the U.S. military is no match for China now and that uh, any war that might break out that widened, well, we would take it, uh, the U.S. would would take the uh, major brunt of it, not China. So what is this all about? Well, the, the worst thing is that Chinese can't be sure, neither can the Russians, but they have to prepare for the worst. And that's what Putin did today in St. George's Hall. He said, look, we know what you're up to. We're not, not turning to the West anymore. The collective West is simply a vassal of the United States. Uh, we're going to create our own Monroe Doctrine here through the middle of Europe. And uh, we do have we do have uh, core interests, and we feel uh, threatened. And so we're gonna we're gonna defend what we have. And if you attack it, man, remember you're attacking Russia now. This is big. So lots of big stuff right now. I did want to ask you. We've got about three and a half minutes left, uh, 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 and you have an interesting article: the New York Times on Ukraine, Vietnam, déjà vu. Uh, Ray McGovern. Yeah, you know, if you've been around a while, uh, sometimes it helps. <laughs> now, I was around for Vietnam. And the New York Times regurgitated what they heard from from the uh, government um, uh, at, at great length. For example, now, there were two incidents. Oh, sorry. No, only one incident in the Gulf, Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, uh, 1964. Okay, so what happened? Well, U.S. destroyers were uh, were shepherding uh, patrol boats who were raiding North Korean ports and North Korean naval facilities, and the North Koreans uh, started to, uh, not North Korea, North Vietnamese. They started shooting back. Whoa! And there was one destroyer that almost got hit by a you know a fifty caliber machine gun. That was the USS Maddox, right? Mm-hmm. So that was the second second of August. Whoa! Lots of lots of stirring about. Fourth of August, nothing happened. That's why I say one thing happened, but nothing happened on the fourth. We knew that. We knew that in intelligence. It was fake signals from some radars going amok. Okay, nothing happened on the fourth. What happened in the White House on the morning of the 5th? Well, we have uh, McGeorge Bundy, the National Security Advisor, telling NPR five years later, uh, President came in and said, okay, Mac, are you going to sell that the Tonkin resolution? Uh, or? And I said, Mr. President, it's not really clear that anything happened uh, last night. And uh, so McNeil says, well, what happened? Uh, McGeorge Bundy said, well, I... Uh, I went up and I sold the the resolution. You know, you know, LBJ is a great big guy. He was hanging over my desk. So I went up and I sold the resolution. Well, what did the Times do about the resolution? They never asked me, George Bundy. They never asked my colleagues in, in the in the bowels of, of the agency that knew it was a spurious event. They went along with the program and waxed eloquent about how we needed to defend uh, Vietnam or South Vietnam or else we would lose all of Southeast Asia, probably Indonesia, maybe the rest of Asia as well. It was, you know, it was imperialism run amok. It was fear of communism run amok. And the deceit was also running amok. 
Ray McGovern. Uh, Ray is a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. You can also go to raymcgovern.com for all of his stuff, including a lot of these, uh, the very uh, 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 segments that we do right here on Radio Sputnik. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The U.S. is threatening Sudan over a deal with Russia to build a naval base on the Red Sea. Also, we discuss the U.S. attack on Germany and the new Cold War. Joining us to discuss this, we have Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author, historian, researcher. He has many, many books. You can go online anywhere that books are fine and find all of Dr. Horn's books. I may suggest, of course, my favorite, and that's the one on Paul Robeson. Dr. Horn, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for inviting me. And Zubu Brothers, there is an interesting article. The Anglo-American access benefits from the ecological terrorist attack in the Baltic Sea. And, you know, the question when there is a crime, of course, being a former investigator, I can tell you this. The first question, who benefits? And in here in this article, they talk about the ways that both the U.S. empire and Poland benefit. Your thoughts just broadly in general about this incident that's happened, what it means, what it portends for the future, et cetera. It's very serious. It's shown that the culprit in Washington is upping the ante, which is quite perilous and quite dangerous. I think also we have to look closely at their comrades, particularly in Warsaw, because you also not only have to look at who benefits, you have to look at means and motive. With regard to the latter, Warsaw for decades, if not centuries, has been fighting a two-front war. And when I say who they're fighting against, you'll understand why they have not been faring very well, Uh, not only against Russia, but also against Germany. Recall that Poland has just made a demand for billions, if not trillions, in reparations for Germany, that the former U.S. National Security Advisor of Polish descent, the Big Nef Brzezinski, he helped to shape U.S. foreign policy, particularly under uh, President Jimmy Carter, in a strikingly not only anti-Soviet but anti-Moscow uh, direction. And if you look at the sabotage of the pipeline, which takes place in the Baltic region, that is to say, takes place in a NATO lake, uh, it tends to lead one to think that Poland, in league with its comrades in Washington, and not to mention their comrades in the Baltic so-called republics, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, uh, had means and motive to effectuate this sabotage, which will harm the German economy further, and likely will also compromise the ability of Moscow to continue supporting or supplying energy westward in case there is some peace agreement in Ukraine in motion. In fact, the sabotage virtually helps 
to underscore and underline this striking article in the New York Times today, September 30th, which talks about how the Pentagon, which has a budget stretching towards a trillion dollars a year, is reformatting. It's like a battleship changing course on the open sea. It basically projects that this struggle against Russia will last indefinitely. And so, therefore, they're gearing up in terms of training the Ukrainian forces, supplying them. You might have seen that meeting, heard of that meeting in Western Europe uh, a day or two ago, I believe it was on Wednesday, where 40 nations, mostly of the North Atlantic bloc, participated and basically uh, are gearing up to put flesh on that skeleton, uh, that is to say, supplying Ukraine indefinitely for this, what they consider to be this twilight struggle, which obviously has echoes of the previous epic, speaking of the Cold War. So this sabotage, it also reminds me of the point that during the Cold War, uh, you had these so-called false flag operations where the United States was willing even to shed the blood of its own citizens if blame could be affixed, for example, to Cuba. So it would be naive, if not ridiculous, to suggest that Washington would not be so provocative as to up the ante against a nuclear power, because I think that Washington realizes that time is not on their side, that with every passing day, China and Russia gain strength and momentum. You might have seen the recent news report about China finally uh, developing a commercial airliner that probably will wipe the floor with Boeing, Boeing being a major earner of export dollars for the United States of America, Boeing attaining a small fortune in recent years by selling aircraft to the People's Republic of China. And also, Boeing has a stiff competitor with regard to Airbus, the European Union enterprise, and certainly harming the interests of Airbus, i.e. harming the interests of the European Union, uh, has occurred to those in Washington particularly as they expect the European Union to act like a lapdog with regard to this new Cold War against Russia and China. And speaking of the European Union, uh, I would be remiss if I failed to mention a book I would recommend to your audience, speaking of the book by Columbia University's A.N.U. Bradford, Bradford, The Brussels Effect, and the subtitle is something like How the European Union Rules the World, which is obviously a stretch. But what she's trying to convey is that the European Union has a larger market than that of the United States of America, even with the British exit from the European Union. Uh, This gives the European Union uh, added muscle and weight in terms of setting international standards. And just like California exercises outsized weight in the federal union of the United States of America, That is to say, when California declares that the internal combustion engine car will have to go off the market in California by 
2035 or thereabouts, it would be difficult for General Motors and Ford to manufacture an internal combustion engine for Texas and electric cars for California. So that generally they go towards electric cars, particularly since China is in the passing lane right now with regard to electric cars. And so the European Union, because of its size and weight, has long been a perceived threat to U.S. imperialist hegemony. In fact, uh, John Bolton, the disgraced former national security advisor under Mr. Trump, said that more than once Mr. Trump looked at the EU as second only to China as a threat to U.S. imperial hegemony. Recall the G7 meetings when Mr. Trump actually threw things at Chancellor Angela <laughs> Merkel, expressing his disgust with Berlin. So this is a very complicated moment that we're facing, uh, whereby Washington seems to feel that time is not on their side, that they feel that they have a military advantage. It's time for the proverbial riverboat gamble, because if they wait much longer, uh, China will be kicking dust into their face. And that's the sort of thing that Uncle Sam does not want to contemplate. Yes, and I think this move is going to give a lot of motivation as, as if China didn't have enough motivation to really support Russia because, let's face it, China is an industrial power, which means they're energy intensive. They got the power of Siberia 1, 2. They've got all these pipelines running from Russia into China, and they know now they, the game is different. And if you're China, you got to be looking now at that saying, how do I secure my pipelines? It's even more important that we stop these people. Dr. Horn. Certainly. And obviously, uh, Washington concomitantly uh, feels the same way. Uh, that's the import of this stream of congressional delegations to Taiwan. Uh, Speaker Pelosi, you recall, Senator Ed Markey, a liberal Democrat from Massachusetts, you'll recall, Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, conservative Republican, you'll recall. And it's apparent that Washington sees Taiwan as the equivalent of Berlin during the Cold War. That is to say, it is a frontline node that has to be defended at all costs. That is also the import of this remarkable meeting of tiny Pacific Island nations at the White House yesterday, where Mr. Biden is trying to round up a Pacific Island posse and to create some sort of cordon around China and pay close attention to the Solomon Islands, where you may have noted that there are melanin-enriched leaders, Melanesians, who look like who could fit in very well uh, on the Howard University campus. And that particular regime, I'm sad to say, is now targeted for destabilization because they are reluctant to break ties with China. And if I may, just a point of per personal privilege, uh, Garland, you may recall that some years ago I did a book on those Pacific Islands where I talked about how after the U.S. Civil War, U.S. enslavers who were defeated migrated westward and began to enslave 
dark-skinned Melanesians, like the leader of the Solomon Islands, and transport them towards a neo-slavery fate in Queensland, Australia. And even though that has been forgotten on this side of the Pacific, it has not been forgotten in New Zealand, amongst the Maori population, in Australia, amongst the indigenous population, and not least in the Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, etc. Here's another, you know, and I think moving in that direction, a perfect segue for this. Uh, particular article, U.S. threatens African nation over Russian military base plan. Washington's new ambassador to Sudan has said there would be consequences for hosting a Russian naval base. Kind of sounds uh, Gregory Meeks-esque there, uh, Dr. Horn. Well, I'm happy that you mentioned Congressman Meeks of the Congressional Black Caucus, who's carried legislations that would threaten African nations who refuse to sign on to the sanctions crusade against Russia. Uh, this is a, an example of gunboat diplomacy that we thought had been discredited uh, in the 20th century, apparently not. And this is the sort of muscular diplomacy, or what might be called coercive diplomacy, uh, that has been used historically against independent Africa. It's one of the reasons why independent Africa is so reluctant to align with U.S. imperialism, because as sovereign states, they do not want to be bullied. And this also reminds me of a meeting in Rotterdam, in the Netherlands, that flew under the radar just a few weeks ago. It was supposed to be a high-level summit between African leaders and European leaders with regard to climate and the climate emergency. But either because European leaders are so distracted by Ukraine or perhaps because they have ultimately disrespect for African leaders, only one European leader showed up, and that was the prime minister of the Netherlands, Mark Rutte. And this left Mackie Saul, the leader of Senegal and the titular leader of the African Union, quite upset. The same holds true for Mr. Tshisekedi, the leader of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And so it seems that the North Atlantic bloc proceeds with ill grace when they basically slap African leaders in the face with regard to their not showing up at Rotterdam and then pivot on a dime and try to twist the arm of African leaders with regard to joining the crusade against Russia. But as President Museveni of Uganda put it during the recent visit of Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, uh, Mr. Museveni uh, said it well. He says, we are capable of developing our own enemies. We do not necessarily have to adopt your enemies. He did not say, with regard to the latter, that if we're going to adopt an enemy, we may peer across the Atlantic and, in fact, look directly at that settler colony on the west bank of the Atlantic Ocean. Last article, it's a Tricontinental Institute, VJ Prasad's home uh, organization. The United States is waging a, no, a new Cold War, a socialist perspective. The thing I think that's interesting they talk about that is that um, the term short-term pain 
for long-term gain, but the little guy takes the short-term pain and the big guy takes the long-term gain. Uh, your thoughts? we got about uh, three and a half minutes, Dr. Dr. Uh, Horn. Well, well, certainly. And, uh, you know, the sadist-in-chief in Washington, D.C., uh, believes heartily in inflicting pain upon others, particularly those that are perceived as not able to resist. In the first instance, historically, uh, that has meant the African continent, the site and source of centuries of free labor that helped to develop this superpower. And I do not think that it boggles the imagination to suspect that Washington appreciated quite well uh, that exploitative relationship with Africa, which was akin to the rider and the horse, with Washington being the rider and Africa being the horse. But alas, I truly believe that those days are far behind, that with the rise of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, with the rise of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, headed by Beijing and Moscow, and including Iran, India, uh, with the capitulation of Mr. Biden at the United Nations Security Council, excuse me, General Assembly meeting just last week, where he suggested adding an African nation, unnamed thus far, to the top table to the United Nations Security Council. That, in, in a sense, was a recognition of reality. It was also a recognition that Washington feels it needs backup with regard to its confrontation with Russia and China. It feels that it can gain that backup by co-opting Africa. But once again, just as with this conflict Washington has launched in Ukraine, I really don't think that they estimated accurately or adequately the correlation of forces politically, and that they're bound to be disappointed if they think that African nations are going to sign off to U.S. imperial hegemony. Yes, I think you are right. I think the first big shock they got was when they found out, oddly, that the, that, that, that India wouldn't join forces with the UK against Russia, uh, possibly they hadn't read any history books about the interactions between India and the U and the UK. We're we've been talking with Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author, historian, and researcher. He's got uh, upwards of thirty books out there. Lots of them. You can go to anywhere where books are sold online and find Dr. Horn's books. I will always suggest the one on Paul Robinson. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland. Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The stock market is continuing on a steady downward trend. Also, Fed rate hikes may drive us into a deep recession. The British pound is crashing and the U.S. is waging a war on Europe's economy. Joining us now to discuss these issues, we have Dr. Linwood Tawheed. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. Dr. Tawheed, welcome back to The Critical Hour. 
Thank you. Let's start here. Yahoo News reports S&P 500 closes at new low for 2022 and Dow falls 458 points as sell-off resumes on recession fears. Two things I want to ask you about that. Number one, uh, the domestic factors causing that, but also as Europe seems to be in a downward spiral, do you also add, do you think what's going on in Europe is affecting the stock market? If so, how? Dr. Tawheed, your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, if, I think it's certainly what's, what's going on in Europe is, is affecting the thinking of, of, of stock traders and uh, so it's affecting the stock market. Uh, when, when the Fed originally moved to um, lower interest rates, uh, excuse me, in, increase interest rates to bring down inflation, uh, there were there were mild fears of recession, and the stock market began to rally uh, with because uh, the hope was that inflation would be brought down. As we've gone further with the Fed increasing rates, but but not much of a move in inflation, uh, the fear is very much turning to a deep recession, which means that uh, for for those who are uh, in the stock market long, that is, they're they're not they're not looking for decreases. In prices, they're looking for increases in, in, in stock prices. That fear of recession uh, means that they're looking at lower economic activity and, and, and their stock values to go down. And so they are, people are, are dumping their stocks now. Is this something, I'll put it like this, do you think we are in danger in the immediacy of, you know, of a, of a meltdown of a 2008 type crash? We've got, you know, a lot of issues going on in the, in the housing market and lots of other areas. And again, looking at what's happening in Europe, do you think we're in danger of, a, of some kind of a meltdown? Well, the 2008 crash was, you know, I'll call that a, a fake crash. It was a, it was a crash in the financial sector because of, of fraud with derivatives and so forth. Now they turned that into a, uh, into a, you know, a, a global meltdown scenario, but, but I don't think we would really have done that if we had let these large, too big to fail banks actually fail. This is different. I, I think this recession is that that's coming is going to be a recession that's going to obviously hit main street uh, as well as wall street. And so I think this will be, this will be even even worse if if the Fed continues on with their with their interest rate uh, hikes. You know that's what we got. We we have to touch on next. Market bull Ed Yardini rings the alarm on further Fed rate rate hikes, warning they could tank asset prices and drag the U.S. economy into a deep recession. I will add this though: I have read articles where there is some musing on Wall Street amongst some of the power brokers about unemployment as though they're in favor, as though they're looking for high unemployment, like they believe that a high unemployment will somehow save uh, the wealthy or save the economy. Anyway, your thoughts on the red hike, the, the rate hikes, how they affect things, and um, also on some of these power brokers feeling that economy, that, excuse me, that um, people losing their jobs is a good thing. Yeah, uh, generally, you know, there's this antagonism or this opposite effect between Wall Street and Main Street. That is, if, if unemployment increases on Main Street, that means that workers are willing to take lower wages. If they can, if uh, companies can get them to take lower wages, then profits go up. And so, and so for quote, mild unemployment, it's, it's, it's good for Wall Street. Deep unemployment, of course, stops the flow of, of money. And also in this in this discussion about you know asset uh, prices, the assets they're referring to are not houses, 
uh, although that that might be uh, you know that, that might be effective as well. They're, they're talking about stocks. Stocks are their assets, mm-hmm. and and when we have a deep recession, then then stock prices are going to fall. Now, of course, the working class labor they will be even in, even in an even worse situation. But it's okay to from from their point of view, it's okay to to devalue labor a little. But when it starts to devalue their stock assets, that's gone too far. Let me ask you this. 2008, we had this crash and many people, I have heard the argument that that was, you know, that was um, capitalism running aground, capitalism crashing. And that ever since then, we've been putting Band-Aids on that crash, that that crash never got dealt with, only basically, you know, we kept feeding the beast. And that these were, that shall we say, some of the contradictions that were (laughs) discussed many, many years ago by Marx have come to fruition and capitalism is is really washing ashore. Your thoughts on that kind of a more broad perspective on on uh, on the 2008 crash and why it's the the repercussions are still manifesting themselves today. Yeah, I think the repercussions are certainly still man, uh, you know manifesting today in terms of you know we've had no increase in wages even though uh, we've had inflation and so those who are blaming you know labor for the inflation they're 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 wrong but they but they know they're wrong there's no not, not been an increase in wages uh but um uh it, 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 in general that that recession was driven by fraud of of investment houses and, and investment banks uh that that's a, that's a that's a uh, a, a crisis that you uh, call the Great Recession, but it was really, uh, uh, you know, uh, initiated by fraud. It wasn't a downturn in economic activity uh, that was significant. Uh, we're, we're talking about uh, a, a significant downturn in economic activity. Um, I, I don't think I, I, I don't I don't uh, agree with the narrative that uh, crises like that. Will, will end up in the downfall of capitalism because capitalists find a way to innovate around those things. I mean, during the 2008 crisis, bankers made a lot of money uh, uh, while while Main Street didn't, and quantitative easing the, 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 the was was put into place so that the Fed shoveled more and more money to bankers. So if capitalism is failing while bankers are getting extremely uh, more wealthy. Uh, we, I, I don't think that those scenarios hold together. So I guess what we're talking about when we talk about capitalism failing, it's failing for whom? <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's failed for 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 labor uh, uh, since since probably the mid uh, 1900s. But uh, when we get into the 1980s, we get into a financial capitalism. Capitalism is doing well for finance. Okay, and what we're looking at, I think, now is. Um, to me, the Ukraine conflict has has, has opened up, uh, I guess, even a discussion, and that is a capitalism of financial, of magical derivatives and asset-backed securities. That would be the U.S. A capitalism of commodities, hard things, uh, you know, gold and neon gas and all of these weird things that Russia supplies that we didn't even know they supplied. And then a capitalism of an industry in China, which is to me, this is what the U- this is how we got off the I say we this is how the U.S. got off the ground by massive um, uh, uh, injection of funds into their 
infrastructure and into allies, helping allies grow, which in turn grew a market for your industry. At any rate, your thoughts on those kind of three, I, I wouldn't call ideally not opposing things, but anyway, Dr. Tawheed. Yeah, you get you got three scenarios. Two of those uh, we would call industrial capitalism, and, and that was the capitalism that existed in this country, uh, certainly until, up until the 1980s, when you have you know the Reagan Revolution, when you begin to get financialization as a as a big movement here, that's a movement into financial capitalism. Uh, that is the U.S. Uh, China is an industrial uh, capitalist uh, uh, version, and uh, and and so and so is Germany and Europe. Uh, many European countries also, uh, I would say, maybe late stage industrial capitalism. But the financial capitalism is winning and has been winning since the 1980s. And, and those who are looking at, uh, you know, um, assets in terms of gold and so forth, you know, those are panic assets. Those are those are assets that you that people are uh, advising that you go to if money fails. Uh, the problematic, of course, is uh, buying a loaf of bread with a bar of gold becomes, <laughs> becomes uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, problematic itself. So so the middle there between, you know, we have this transition between industrial capitalism and financial capitalism and, and all of the turmoil that that results from that. And you have those who are looking for a third way out in terms of, um, you know, what's going to save us. But but certainly, uh, we, we China is not taking the financial route. They're actually building things, Russia as well. Uh, and they have the raw materials and the and the expertise and the the knowledge to do that. Uh, they are they are uh, a long way from from converting to financial capitalism if that ever happens here. Let's move to um, uh, 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 let's move over to the EU. Um, uh, here's an interesting article. Absolutely hammered. UK pound slides to its lowest level against the U.S. dollar since 1971. I've been reading a little bit, and I found out that within the last few days, the um, British uh, economic system nearly collapsed, and they had to um, do some, you know, the effective, effectively print money that they couldn't sell their bonds. People didn't want to buy the bonds. And looking at the uh, trajectory of the British economy, I can understand why. Your thoughts on this, uh, the, the, the pound crashing, what that means, and are we looking at a potential economic collapse in the UK. Well, I think it's not just the UK. This is also, of course, happening in the rest of Europe. I think what makes the UK a front runner in this is is Brexit. Mm-hmm. You know, you add Brexit to to the uh, inflation in Europe in general. Uh, and Brexit itself was going to cause a decline in in European and UK economic activity. Uh, and so, in this case, uh, the UK becomes a forerunner of of things that are to come. For the rest of for the rest of Europe, um, you know this decrease in the value of the British pound and 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 uh, the euro in general uh, makes U.S. goods more expensive, but it also makes European goods less expensive. So it makes it uh, more attractive for U.S. holders of U.S. dollars to go and buy up things in Europe. And uh, I, I can I can almost think of this as an opportunity for Europe for U.S. investors to to go in and, 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 in fact, colonize Europe in terms of buying up all of the assets. Um, uh, and, and I think that's also, I think that's going on and, 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 we'll, and we'll, we'll continue through this process. I know we have, we have another discussion 
on that. Um, you know, uh, the, the new prime minister of this trust is is proposing tax cuts. Uh, uh, but, you know, what we've seen recently in the U.S., uh, tax cuts don't end up being reinvested in industry. They end up being uh, stock buybacks. And if the value of stocks, of course, are declining, then it makes it even more attractive for those tax cuts to buy back stocks instead of actually improving the economy, the real economy. Well, and, and here's the other part, you know, um, the, 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 the UK is doing, you know, huge amounts of borrowing. They want to sell bonds, et cetera. But here's the, 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 the issue. If I'm going to lend you money, I want to know you got to have a job. And I'm going to lend you money and I'm looking at you and you lost your job and there's no prospects in the future. That's the other part of it. When I look, there's a, uh, here's an article. The U.S. is winning its war on Europe's industries and people and, and, and people. That's a, a Moon of Alabama uh, article. Here's the thing about it. I don't see um, light at the end of the tunnel for the U.K. or for the EU. I don't see, well, in two years, they'll be fine. Well, in five years, in 10 years, they have cut off cheap Russian energy, which is their model for an industrial base, which means no industrial base, which means eternal poverty. I don't know. Anyway, your thoughts on all of this. Is the, U the U.S. is winning its war on Europe's industries and people? Yeah, going back to the bond issue, yes, no one's going to want to buy um, uh, government bonds from uh, the UK or from other countries in, in Europe if, if they don't believe that, that those bonds are going to be able to be uh, paid back. The money, the money for bonds are going to be able to pay back, much less the interest rates. And so, you know, you buy companies that, that sell bonds com uh, sell bonds based on their ability to repay and, uh, and the EU um, and uh, including the UK. Are, are, are that that ability is waning and and decisively being being contracted. Now, I, I think this this uh, observation that that the war uh, in in Ukraine is uh, has a two as it has two targets. One is Russia uh, from the U.S. point of view. One is Russia, but the other is Europe and particularly Germany. Uh, because Germany is a neoliberal light nightmare and has been for a while. You know, Germany has strong labor unions, and, and that extends out to most of the rest of the EU. It has strong social safety nets. It has free education. It has subsidization of those who are, who are being educated. Those are things that the, that the neoliberals must destroy. And so by destroying Germany, uh, uh, the, the, the neolibs are, are destroying the engine of industrial capitalism in Europe and making it ripe for financialization. And, and in the process, of course, of, of the U.S. dollar being strong makes it easier for what we'll, what we'll be calling the development uh, area, foreign direct investment, where U.S. firms or U.S.-oriented firms uh, go in and buy up everything in Europe that's that's the way, I guess, out for them. But Europeans won't own anything anymore. They'll simply be a colony of the U.S. Here's an article, and I think it's important. Thousands take to streets in North Germany demanding launch of Nord Stream 2. That was Monday, September 26. What's interesting about this is over the course of the weekend, there were people saying, we want Nord Stream 2 open. We demand Nord Stream 2, 2 it gets open, and Monday morning Nord Stream 2 gets blown up. I could, I would certainly, A, point the finger at the neocons in Foggy Bottom, but B, that, I mean, basically take the flag down and turn the lights out when you leave, uh, when you, when the last person to leave Germany, they are closed for business. Dr. Tawheed. 
Yeah, I thought the the timing of this uh, of this uh, of the explosions on the the two pipelines was uh, was uh, fortuitous, because you know we see this this uh, protest uh, in, in northern Germany here, in the town that was the receiver of the Nord Stream two pipeline. But but this is I think an example of what's going on in Germany in general. You know, Germany has spent decades, the, the, the Germans have spent decades trying to build good trading relations with Russia. That was what Angela Merkel, in fact, was 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 most known for. And then uh, we get Schultz and and everything goes goes to, to hell. And but the German people still want their oil and they want their gas and they want their industry. And uh, so, you know, these protests of thousands of people who are protesting to put Nord Stream 1 and uh, Nord Stream 2 online uh, comes at a time when now it's impossible. I mean, they can protest, but but those pipelines are are severely damaged. And so those protests are, I guess the protests have to be to rebuild the pipeline before we put it back online. Uh, the the idea that that spreading, of course, that Russia had something to gain from this is is pretty insane. I'm sure there are people who believe it, but 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 the Russians have nothing to gain by blowing up their asset, and uh, they, they that is in fact uh, the Nord Stream two pipeline was leveraged in trying to get Germany to to um, to uh, come to some negotiated settlement for the war in Ukraine. Uh, now that that leverage is gone, so that's that's not to the to advantage of, of Putin to have done that. Uh, it is to the advantage of the U.S. if the U.S. is wanting to scuttle the German economy. I think you're right because um, it, it, it was leverage. It was obvious that to any observer, even the casual, untrained eye, that at some point during this winter, the pressure was going to be irresistible from the German people to the German um, government to turn it on. And when these protests started and it became obvious for some reason that we don't quite know yet, but many of us are suspicious, um, a a most unfortunate uh, turn of events occurred. (laughs) But uh, I think we will see over the course of the winter that when people really need that stuff on and they realize what happened, there will be fury and it's not going to be a pretty situation. Dr. Linwood Tawheed, thank you very much. Dr. Tawheed is an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and a regular on the show. Thank you, Dr. Tawheed, for taking a few uh, minutes out of your day. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The U.S. war on Germany has entered its hot phase. Also, October 8th is a day for Julian Assange rallies and protests. The Democrats are now the party of war and the FBI is acting shady about the details of their involvement in the January 6th Capitol protest. Who in the world is Ray Epps? Joining us now for this and more, we've got Jim Cavanaugh. Jim is a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. And Steve Poikinen, who is national organizer for Action for Assange. And he's the host of Slow News Day every morning on rockfin.com. R-O-K-F-I-N, rockfin.com. I always say it's like YouTube, only better. Steve Poikinen and Jim, welcome back to The Critical Hour. 
Thanks for having me. Hey, hey. The war on Germany, Moon of Alabama says, just yesterday I laid out how the U.S. is winning its war on Europe's industries and people. That war hidden behind the U.S.-created Ukraine crisis is designed to destroy Europe's manufacturing advantage compared to the U.S. It is more likely, though, to strengthen the economic position of China and other Asian countries. The war on Germany. Start with you, Jim Cavanaugh, your thoughts. Yes, it is. It's a war on uh, the world at this point, you know, but uh, clearly this sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines is just incredible. That There's very few people who can do this. It's not like, you know, there are, there are three, two or three countries in the world who are capable of doing this. So whoever did it had, and, you know, the United States Navy and was all over the Baltic Sea in the last few days and months, and it's a small part of uh, a small, relatively small body of water that is covered by NATO forces all the time. So it's impossible that this couldn't have been done without the connivance of the United States. And everybody knows it. <laughs> and so really, and you have the phenomena of demonstrations in Germany calling for an end to the sanctions and the opening of the Nord Stream pipeline, and the very next day, the Nord Stream pipeline blows up, which prevents Germany from choosing, which was under a lot of pressure from its people to do, to open the Nord Stream pipeline and get energy flowing into Germany. So there's, there's only one party, uh, one side in this conflict that benefits from this, and it breaks, and it breaks for a long time, uh, Germany's relation uh, to possible cooperation with Russia. It ends the possibility of them getting energy from Russia. It forces them to uh, stay in the war in some respects. It, does, it, it takes away any uh, the advantage they would get from opening this, this pipeline. So it's really, and it's going to destroy German industry and German manufacturing. This is what Michael Hudson has said all along. This is a war against Germany as much as anything else. It's a war to, you know, keep Russia out, Germany down, and the Americans in. And they're forcing the Europeans to break from Russia, to have no choice about it, and to depend more thoroughly on American manufacturing and uh, American, their economic relations with the United States. And it's definitely World War III. I mean, nobody is, is under any illusion about who did this. The Russians are not going to sit back and just say, oh, that's okay. And uh, it, it's the kind of thing that, you know, uh, can't be taken back. I, I don't know where we're going from here, but it's extremely dangerous. You know, uh, Steve, here's the other part of it. It is the U.S. saying this is a different game to Europe, saying, OK, you guys are colonies and vassals. Sure, you know that. I know that. Unfortunately, your uh, citizens didn't know that. But we've all, we've we've. Yeah, you know, we'll overthrow a government here and there in Italy or Greece. But, you know, UK, France, Germany, we're going to leave your land. What they're now saying is we will use violence to discipline you. We will use violence to keep you in line. If you decide that from now on to me, anytime the U.S. says something to France or Germany or Spain, the, the, un, the unspoken thing at the end of it is, or we'll blow up your infrastructure if you don't do what we tell you. It's a new game. There's a new sheriff in town, and his name's Dark Brandon. Steve. In the same way that the U.S. gets accused of being the world's police, 
we're running around and try and stop anybody we don't like from doing stuff that we do in every other country anyway. It, that that applies here because we're saying, okay, look, uh, it, your people are going to get treated the exact same way that the U.S. police force treats its citizens if they try to stop us from wrecking your country. The, there's, uh, we've seen it. Uh, we've seen a slow buildup to this, but then in just the last week, a rapid acceleration. To this is uh, talk and posturing. Oh look, it's more sanctions. Oh look, uh, we blew up a pipeline. Which, by the way, they found another leak in it. They're going to find another one and another one. The, that that pipeline's done. It's never coming back. Period. The, that relationship has been completely severed. Um, and then from there, we went to oh, and by the way, we're going to guarantee a triggering of Article Five. The it's it's been a it's it's been a fast week. You know, the other part of it is, you know, there's a lot going on with the with the Ukraine war. But at the other end of it, uh, Jim, is a country that's set for collapse. I mean, I watched what happened in Myanmar, and that was a small country. We're talking about the continent of Europe, over a half a billion people. And we're looking at, you know, people are talking like, oh, yeah, things could go bad. We could be talking about a monumental collapse of societies, economic, and I would argue it's maybe even likely, and it's hard to even conceive what that looks like in a modern developed country, Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, well, you know, as I said many times, uh, neoliberalism is a war against European social democracy, and it was carried out by the Socialist Party, largely, and they've gotten to the point where now, look at what's happening, every, look what's happening in, in, in Britain, the collapse of the British economy. I mean, you, you are going to have, as you say, uh, there's a danger of a real collapse that's going to cause enormous unrest and enormous suffering. And that's laid over and part of what's a, a demand for World War III against Russia. Uh, and it's part of that. And, and you know, uh, we, we can't minimize what we're, what we're in at this point. We're in a, a, a conjuncture which is just so dangerous. Russia is not going to sit back. Well, to a certain extent, they can sit back and watch, watch, watch Europe collapse. Yeah. But they can't sit back and watch, uh, watch infrastructure being blown up. And uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a level of just incredible danger here. The United States is directly involved in conflict, in a war with Russia, and they're forcing the Europeans to do that too. And at the same time, they're forcing the Europeans to undergo an economic collapse. It's just incredible that we're seeing this happen so quickly and so decisively and that Americans are kind of sleepwalking through this. And uh, Jim, I, I mean, uh, uh, Steve, I got to add this. You, uh, to me, you can't talk about this without adding China into it, at least. And that is, meanwhile, the Biden administration is doing everything they can to provoke a war with China. And if you're China, let's face it, you know who did this. Everybody knows who did this. But if you're China, you know we've got the power of Siberia and more pipelines being built. If you're the Asian countries, you got to look and say, we got a bunch of pipelines. We need energy, too. These people have lost their minds, and certainly they've gone into international infrastructure terrorism. That seems to be the new game in town with the, with the forces of Dark Brandon. Steve, your thoughts on how China fits into this, particularly with everything that's going on? Well, yeah, we were talking about this uh, this morning on the show. It, the 
The Chinese, it's going to be, okay, so I mean, they really are trying to knock on the door of World War III. Regardless of whether or not Ukraine is actually accepted into NATO and they have to have a unanimous vote in order for that to happen, I really think that a history of, you know, double dipping by the Turks is going to prevent that from being official, but that remains to be seen. Um, the Turks, by the way, are waiting in the wings with all of their own little pipelines and all, you know, that too. Like, hey, we've got, it's right here. Um, I think that, that China's going to probably just pull way back from all of the, from the situation as much as possible, allow whatever business deals they have to go through to go through. But I think they're really going to be waiting to see what the next couple of weeks are like. And then when they support Russia, it will be in softer power ways, likely through um, cyber war or logistics or surveillance capabilities. But um, it's going to be interesting no matter how you shake it. You know, Jim, my thoughts is this. Russia doesn't need the that kind of stuff. You know, they got all the satellites. They're, they're very, very advanced. But I think China's support for Russia has been they have dramatically increased, you know, the things that they're buying from Russia. Basically, I think the position of China is in this particular circumstances is to give soft support for Russia on the international diplomatic stage. Meanwhile, buy everything that Russia's selling, because the one thing China has lots of is money and they need stuff that's real Russia. So they they can make up the difference between for the um um, for the sanctions and keep Russia going, Jim? Well, they're going to absolutely uh, increase their relationship with Russia. You know, this is the opposite of what, you know, the, the smart uh, imperialists like Kissinger, where let's do something that's going to break Russia apart, Russia and China apart. This is pushing them together. China knows, look, you made a point to me, we were talking privately the other day, and it's a very good point, that this is this is like the United States taking people's reserve accounts. This is taking their money. This is screwing around. You know, that's, that was screwing around with something that's supposed to be off limits. This is the energy infrastructure of the world in an international waters, not in Russia, not in Ukraine. This is a pipeline that supplies all of Europe. And what the United States is doing is saying, we will destroy the energy infrastructure of the world in a way, for whatever reason we want, whenever we want. And the rest of the world is looking at this. Countries like China, countries like Saudi Arabia, people who supply and, and need energy are saying, the United States is not a reliable per actor in this world. They're going to just take our money if they need to, and they're going to prevent us from moving oil and energy around the world if they, if, if they want to. And that's something that's, you know, can only push people away from the United States, just like it's pushing them away from the dollar when they take all your accounts. When they start blowing up the energy infrastructure of the world, all the people in the world who produce or need energy are saying, we, we want to get the United States out of this in some way. So that's going to help, you know, in every level, uh, economically and militarily, the United States is pushing Russia and China closer together and pushing most of the world away from it in Deep, deep ways. Antiwar.com. No votes for war hawks, no matter the party. The Democratic Party, now the leading party of war. Uh, we'll start with you, Steve. They are. They, they've been the party of war for, the, I don't know, at least 30, 40 years at this point. The, when Bill Clinton went and committed war crimes, 78 straight days of war crimes in, in Serbia. 
You know, I, they, they were the party of war. When he went and bombed Iraq, they were the party of war. When the drone program was birthed, really, under the, the Clinton presidency's, presidency's watch, shepherded into existence, they were the party of war. Barack Obama got elected on I'm gonna end the wars and then he went and started a whole bunch of new a whole bunch of brand new illegal ones. Um there's every foreign policy move that's made comes with the full throated approval of at least ninety five percent of the Democratic Party. But we've moved into a spot now going into to the twenty twenty two midterms, twenty twenty four presidential election, where there's the the difference, the only difference between who is the bigger war party, the Republicans or the Democrats, is in a race to who wants to annihilate however many countries the most first, the fastest. And that it, there's I, I don't I don't know. I don't know how anybody could make even the slightest argument that they're not just openly aggressive. We would like to destroy the planet. It seems to me the fight is here. It's between different factions of the oligarchs, and that is the commodities, the oil people, they want to take over Russia because Russia has lots of commodities. The industrial oligarchs, they want to take over China because China has the industry. So it's the oligarchs fighting over how they're going to divide the world up. The only problem is the world is not cooperating. The Democratic Party, now the leading party of war, shockingly, Jim Cavanaugh. Well, it's not shocking, as Steve said. You know, historically, I can go back to World War II. You know, the Vietnam War is the Democratic presidents and Democratic administrations who brought us into war and kept it going, have been very enthusiastic about war. So there's no surprise about that. What's more surprising is that you, you know, the only votes against, you know, uh, uh, the uh, this, as this uh, antiwar.com article says, the only votes against uh, these uh, appropriations for, for for Ukraine weapons are, have come from Republicans. There is now a party of uh, libertarian anti-war. It's a kind of so and so so-called anti-imperialist Republicans who don't like interventionism. But the Republican Party as a whole is at least as warmongering as the Democratic Party. At least as warmongering about Ukraine and Russia as the Democratic Party, and. Definitely, at least, as well marketing about China. So, you know, the problem is we're in a situation where there is no strong element of the political class of either political party which is going to come to power and put an end to this and put a break on it. They're all enthusiastic about this. So, it, it, again, it's an extremely dangerous situation. Uh, the so called squad and progressives, uh, you know, have laid down for this. They are, you know, Progressive accept imperialism, just like the progressive accept Palestine. And yeah, it's phony. And what can you say? We, there, we, we have to have an anti-war movement, which has disappeared, thanks to, you know, the laying down for the Democrats and the, and the Obama fiction. Yeah, I think, I think Obama was a big part of killing the, uh, definitely I agree with you on that, killing the anti-war movement. Steve, go ahead. So was John Stewart. In terms of killing the anti-war movement, The Daily Show did more to pacify liberals and progressives than just about anything else in media for a dozen years. Yeah, I think you're, you're right. We got another article that's very important. 
Who in the world is Ray Epps? Did the FBI instigate the January 6th riots? You know, we've got a history of that. In fact, they had some problems with the Michigan governor kidnapping case because it seems that everybody at the top of the organization were members of the FBI or some or paid FBI informants. January 6th, some guy named Ray Epps gets uh, continually gets filmed pumping up the crowd saying, we got to go into the Capitol, drive, pushing them to do whatever it is that he wanted them to do, which seems to be illegal. And his name was then on the FBI's like most wanted list. And then he all just disappeared. Ray Epps. Who in the world is that? Steve Porkin in your thoughts. So Ray Epps is a, a gentleman who um, I believe still lives in Arizona. Um, but he, uh, he was a, a member of, I think the, I think he's a Navy, I believe he's a Navy vet. Um, at any rate, he was, uh, one of the people who were all over the place throughout the entire week and a couple of days before the Capitol insurrection. I, I was there <laughs> on the ground in person. I know I, I witnessed a, a significant portion of it. Um, <clears throat> But uh, what Ray Epps was doing was trying to rally up and stoke and get as many people to agree with him that going in and breaching the Capitol was the thing that needed to be done. He was shouted down on camera as a Fed by like group after group that he kept approaching the night before with this story. We've got to go in. We've got to go in. Repeatedly shouted down, repeatedly called out. Um, There were... uh, the day of the January 6th, while everybody's still down at the ellipse, mind you, uh, is when all of the, the mayhem was going on. It wasn't until Donald Trump really pointed towards the Capitol that um, that then became what they used as uh, a, a signal to start the breach in the first place. Ray Epps is on camera whispering into a couple of different people's ears who immediately go and knock down a barricade or cause a distraction that allows for uh, another group of people to breach a barricade. There was uh, multiple video shots of him coordinating and directing people from just outside one of the entrances of the Capitol. And again, as Garland mentioned, um, removed entirely from the FBI's list of people they needed to talk to about this thing, completely denied the ghost, according to numerous FBI officials and congressmen. The very, very uh, the, yeah, almost mythical figure at this point. You know, Jim, and add this. I don't know if I sent a, a, a video that was on the Jimmy Dore show and I watched that. And basically you see the so-called oversight of Congress in action where they're saying to the FBI, you know, who's this Ray Epps guy? Where he, was he on your payroll? Uh, I can't answer that question. And, and and Congress, which is supposed to be oversight, saying to the FBI, we want to know about this. I can't answer that question. We want to know about that. I can't answer that question. And I look at it and I say, uh, something's rotten in Denmark. But Congress has will, excuse me, will not use their oversight authority to go up against the FBI. Jim Cavanaugh. Well, yeah, it's amazing to watch those things, because as you say, this guy was on your most wanted list. He's living in Arizona. He goes on TV. <laughs> Why wasn't he arrested? Oh, wait a minute. He's off the list. Why did you take him off the list? Oh, I don't know anything about that. Oh, was, that was, was Ray an FBI informant? I can't answer that question. I mean, really. The, I'm, the, I'm the second in command of the FBI uh, you know, on this issue, 
And I can't answer that question. Yes, I've heard of Ray Epps, but I can't answer that question. Now, as Jim Dore said, the, that means the answer is yes, because if he wasn't, they would have said, oh, no, no, no. So, but as you say, what's interesting about this or horrifying about this is that the Congress won't really push this where it needs to go. What would you do? You'd have to take on the FBI completely. And I don't think even the Republicans want to do that. And of course, the media doesn't report it. Only the, only the so-called conservative media reports it. And it just gets lost. And, you know, 99% of people who have never heard of Ray Epps don't know what it's about. And it's, you know, you, when you watch the videos of him saying, we got to go into the Capitol, and everybody goes, no, no, no. <laughs> it's, hey, no, but we got to go into the Capitol. And I'm saying this, I, they may arrest me, but that's all right. I'm going to tell you, I, we may go, we have to go into the Capitol. And at the demonstration, as Steve said, he's telling people after Trump's speech, let's go to the Capitol. It's that way. We've got to go to the Capitol. I mean, really, he's a, I mean, if he's not a Fed, he should be. <laughs> Yeah. You know, um, when we look at this, the other thing about it is I I recall uh, we'll go to you, Steve. I recall um, I believe it was Chuck Schumer talking about Donald Trump basically saying, don't mess with the deep state. Don't mess with the FBI, the CIA, none of them. They have six ways from Sunday to get you. He's basically this is a man who I mean, he is entrenched in the congressional um, uh, you know, uh, uh, in history and in, in, in the culture of, of Congress. And he basically says, here's a new guy coming in as president. He don't understand the rules. You don't touch these people. They will tear you apart. When I hear that, here's what I think, Steve. There ain't no way when the Republicans win in November, if they win, which they probably will, they're touching any of this stuff. The only thing the Republicans are going to do is say, how can we spin the Hunter Biden thing to go after China? Because the deep state wants us to go after China. The rest of this, all of these people that think somehow the Republicans are going to come in and they're going to set everything to right and justice are fooling themselves. They ain't touching these people either. Let's go to let's go to Steve. Steny Hoyer stood on the floor uh, at chamber of the Senate the other day, and he gave a, a little talk about the deep state. And he made a point to not only confirm the existence of an unelected, entrenched, permanent state, but he said that these are people who, who have a loyalty to the, the Constitution. They're not even loyal to me or anyone else in the room, their their loyalty is above our politics, is what Steny Hoyer said. So that's the marketing uh, for the deep state coming out of the halls of Congress now. What what Steny Hoyer is failing to mention, and what the marketing, of course, you know, obfuscates on purpose, is, is that a permanent, unelected bureaucracy exists to self-perpetuate by whatever means necessary that it's going to do that. And there is zero political will, zero incentive, and zero reality of the GOP ever finding out in public who Ray Epps is. Some of them might find out in private, and then they'll stop asking questions. You're absolutely right. I think you said that what we're going to see from the Republicans, oh, it's going to, we're going to impeach Joe Biden. And there's going to be 15 hours a day of impeachment or not impeachment, or should we or should we not impeach, and all kinds of stuff about the Biden, Hunter Biden laptop, as you say, and things like that. But they're not going to get to the core of the problem. They're going to create a, a circus like the Democrats created around, uh, around 
Trump. They'll create a circus around Biden and impeachment, and that'll be another distraction. It'll be China. It will be you did something with China, China's evil China, because they will act just like the Democrats on behalf of the deep state, not to um, expose it. On October 8th, speaking of the deep state and their miscreant activity, on October 8th, people around the world will take action to demand that Julian Assange be freed. We got we got to start with you on this. Steve is a national organizer for action for Assange. I might remind everybody, Steve, what's happening on October 8th? So the main event, as it were, uh, is a parliament that begins, I believe, at noon. The goal is to surround the British parliament with a human chain. Um, There are going to be a number of solidarity events around the world uh, on October 8th, notably uh, in front of the Department of Justice building in Washington, D.C., where a fellow named Garland Nixon will be showing up to speak. Uh, along with Chris Hedges and a ton of other incredible people. Um, So if you're anywhere near the D.C. area, please go and show some support there. If you go to the Twitter account at Candles, the number four Assange, there is a list of all of the different actions that are going to be taking place. In addition to that, uh, Roger Waters on tour around the U.S. getting ready to head over to Europe. Um, There is always an Assange booth. At the Roger Waters show, there's some coming. There's one here in Vegas tomorrow. I'll be at that. Then uh, Arizona, Texas, and then I think he's headed off to Europe. So um, there's going to be some other opportunities to at least engage with some people who have an idea what's going on. But again, if you are anywhere near an event, please do go show up October 8th. Almost all of them universally start at noon. You know, uh, Jim, I know you've done a lot of work in New York with Assange. Your your thoughts on the current state of affairs and and what's happening on August 8th? Yeah, everybody should come out to where they can if they're close to an event. Uh, It is, you know, this is a signal case for free speech and freedom of the press. There's nothing more important in that respect going on in the world now. And, you know, this guy's been uh, under persecution for a decade and we've got to get this over with. We've got to get this over with on his behalf and his terms. And it's very unlikely we're going to do it unless we have massive, popular political support out in the street. And people need to take a, a, a stand on this, you know, and it's something that can unite all people from Republicans to Democrats in this. They should be able to unite it and unite on this. And we need to do it. We need to be out for, out for Assange. Steve, I think it is important, particularly now, because I have a feeling that the Biden administration knows that to bring Assange, extradite him here, they'd catch some heat, that they would get some some uh, some issues that they didn't want prior to the midterms, that after the midterms, they're going to go all out to get Assange and bring him here and then, uh, you know, do whatever it is they're going to do. And and it seems that what they want to do is, you know, a slow and long term execution. Uh, we got about a minute and a half. Joe Biden's on record calling Julian Assange a high-tech terrorist. Joe Biden's on record saying more than once that he should die in prison. This is something that they would they would like to avoid talking about, if at all possible. But once it happens, they want to be able to shut the door on it immediately. That is why it is so important to make as much noise as you possibly can. Jim Kavanaugh is absolutely right. There's no partisanship to this. A nation is only as as free as its press, and the free press is currently 
incarcerated 23 and a half hours a day in Belmarsh prison. Yeah, uh, the Biden administration has a full court press on the free press. We're talking with Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. And Steve Porkin, a national organizer for Action for Assange. And don't forget, you can go to rockfin.com, R-O-K-F-I-N.com, and you can find his great program, Slow News Day. He's on every morning. And the uh, video remains up afterwards that so you can watch uh, uh, Steve Porkin. That's Slow News Day. Great show. I highly recommend it. You are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The Black Alliance for Peace is launching a month of activities to oppose AFRICOM. Also, we discuss Haiti, the democratic revolution in Latin America, and the U.S. attack on Germany's pipeline network. For more on these exciting stories, we return, we turn to Ajamu Baraka. He's the 2016 U.S. vice presidential candidate for the Green Party. Annette for Freeman, host of Voices with Vision on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. He's also a pan-Africanist and internationalist organizer. Gentlemen, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Good to be here. Thank you. Well, I'm going to start with this particular article uh, for popularresistance.org before we get into everything, because I think it's important. And this is a summation. We'll start. We'll start with the end in mind. Imperialism and capitalism are bleeding the world dry. At the United Nations General Assembly, Nicaragua's Sandinista government called for a global rebellion against the imperialist and capitalist system that is bleeding the world dry, condemning illegal sanctions and war, and er and it urged a new multipolar order. Let's start with you, Ajamu Baraka. I thought that was a very uh, important, very strong speech that really lays out the tasks and responsibilities that that all of us who have been victimized by this colonial uh, capitalist system have to seriously consider embracing. That is, embracing a uh, a politics that's more um, explicit and not only naming the enemy, but expressing where we need to be going. That is, many of us have to uh, are beginning to uh, understand that uh, is 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 important not just to condemn this colonial capitalist system, but to talk about the need for a socialist transformation, and that that necessity is is in place now because it's quite clear that these uh, Western colonial capitalist nations are committed to maintaining hegemony by any means necessary. And the means that they have embraced um, to, in fact, uh, uh, maintain their hegemony is the use of violence. So there's a war taking place, and it's a uh, a class war. Uh, And unfortunately, it's a one-sided war. So what Nicaragua said was, it's time for the people of the world to understand the terms of struggle, 
uh, and to engage in a struggle for our lives because that's exactly what it is. And let me read another uh, sentence. It is time to make important the principle of sovereign equality of states in all international organizations and fora so that multipolar and non-aligned world that we have so yearned for can be reality, can be strengthened, can grow and include all of us. Netfa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, multipolarism really is definitely the only way toward a respecting of sovereignty and the and the world dominated by the the capitalist the eurocentric eurocentric uh, capitalism and neoliberalism we we can only know um dominance you know they are actually committed and then this is led by the united states at this point and they are actually committed and even avow uh say uh, articulate the fact that they're committed to full spectrum dominance as, as they know it and so right now with this uh, with the rise of powers and them competing with powers like China um, and their insistence on competition versus uh, versus uh, cooperation, then it compels the rest of the world to have to take some sort of side and take sides even in the uh, in a way of navigating, trying to navigate their self-determination, they end up having to take a side and and it's something that's so so polarized. And so, but we, with multipolarism, which is the only way to really do it, that's the only way to really um, way forward for countries to be able to exercise and, and do things in their best interest, and even figure out how we can uh, maneuver or not. I don't, I don't like the word use the word term maneuver, but advance to something that's much more cooperative and cooperating on the international stage. Um, and so I think that's very important. I think that's something that uh, President Ortega is very astute in, in realizing that. And that the countries, particularly the left tide in Latin America, is is realizing that. And we need to also be able to get further toward what was known as the non-aligned, what is the non-aligned movement in the U.S., I mean, I'm sorry, in the world, so that we're not you know, so that, that people can actually pursue things in a way that's not necessarily doesn't have to necessarily be aligned with the so closely aligned with the interests of one or or another uh, world power. You know, Jamu, I think we should add, and this is you know uh, the big story right now, and that is that the Nord Stream uh, one and two pipelines were um, attacked. What appears to be some level of a terrorism attack, and it seems quite clear to most observers that the U.S. either was in, uh, you know, likely was either perpetrated the act or was involved. But here's the part I I see. The U.S. empire has been happy to beat the daylights out of Africa, Latin America, you know, Haiti, et cetera, the Caribbean. And now the U.S. empire in its desperation and madness is saying even our own vassals and colonies who have been complicit in the oppression of these people worldwide, if they so much as get out of line, we will abuse and use violence against them to the, the same. It, it seems is that what is, what's going on there? Is it desperation? Is it anger? Ajamu Baraka. It is, um, it is a desperate attempt to try to maintain their, their grip on, on Europe. Um, they are committed to using all of the means at their disposal to, in fact, uh, realize uh, what they refer to, and, and, and Brother Neffer just uh, re- uh, referred to it, full-spectrum uh, dominance. Um, and part of that commitment to full-spectrum dominance is the strategic objective or strategic commitment to the use of, of violence, subversion, uh, et cetera. So 
their uh, desperate attempt to try to uh, realize their objectives with the Ukrainian war, which, which, which was both to attempt to undermine the strength of, of Russia uh, and to uh, undermine its ability to be an effective uh, a partner with the Chinese. The secondary objective was to undermine uh, Germany. Um, and they knew that to do that, they had to uh, disarticulate the German economy from the economy of, of Russia. And to make sure that there's no uh, 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 rearticulation anytime soon when it comes to the issue of energy, instead of having some kind of conversation around that, uh, they've decided to move uh, to <laughs> sever that relationship by severing the pipelines from uh, Russia, the Russian Federation to, uh, to Germany. And they, you know, they signaled that they were prepared to engage in that kind of, 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 of reckless uh, and aggressive uh, activity from the beginning of this manufactured conflict with Ukraine. Um, we didn't, I think many of us did not um, believe that they would go to the extent of actually physically sabotaging the, the pipelines uh, we knew that they were going to try to stop the uh, uh, gas flow. Uh, but uh, uh, it, this is a real reflection of the kind of, of aggressiveness that they are now prepared to, uh, to engage in to maintain their hegemony. So it is a sign of desperation, a sign of, of weakness. Uh, but that also is uh, what's troublesome about this, because uh, these kinds of forces, when they are desperate and weak, they become irrationally aggressive. Uh, you know, let me add this, Netfa, and that is, and there's one more thing I see out of this, and that is the clear reality that a empire doesn't even benefit the citizens of the empire or the citizens of its colonies. If you look at what's happening, this empire, all of this money is being spent on war stuff that's going into the pockets of a few oligarchs. Same with Europe. The people of Europe now are being made to suffer horribly. And the, the people of the United States, we don't have decent schools, decent roads, decent not anything. So even in an empire is successful, the citizens of the empire aren't successful. Netfa. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the nature of empire. It has a very implicit and acute um, class uh, orientation to it. And so there's, a, you know, there's always the, the elite class or the ruling class um, that's in power that is desperately trying to hold on to that power. And uh, I mean, like and Brother Jammu talked about, it's very reactionary. So as an empire, there's a whole lot of different uh, nations connected to it. And those nations that are subject to that power construction are also unable, even if they wanted to, to provide for the basic needs of their of their population. And then in this neoliberal uh, stage of neoliberalism, and then what we I remember the brother Glenn Ford, I don't know if he was the only to say it, to coin it, but he used it and reminded us it's a race to the bottom. It's a very reactionary and dangerous. That's what Brother John was saying. It's a dangerous scenario that these folks don't really understand. They're trying to maintain uh, power, but it has to be, for the concentration of wealth to be, it has to be at the expense of the masses. So what they're trying to do is, one, exercise their control over various nations, and those various that we call vassal states, uh, and so to speak, have to also deprive their domestic populations of certain things just to serve um, the, the exercise that helps serve the, the ruling the ruling class and make basically ruling countries. So and, and to keep it in this, it, it, this is very interesting in the sense that 
one of the uh, things about full the full spectrum dominance type of posture that everything becomes militarized, even domestically. We can see it in the U.S. They have to keep fooling people as if the U.S. is the most is better place in the world and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, they know the major, the most disenfranchised populations that are majority of people, you know, they're not buying that. So you see programs like the 1033 program, which is taking military uh, equipment from the Department of Defense and giving it to local police forces. And those that equipment and those weaponry is only used pretty much. It's not for crime or anything. It's, it's pretty much to quell the unrest that is inevitable in this new liberal situation. And it's the same thing with their vassal states on, on the Africa continent. When we have AFRICOM, the U.S. Africa Command, this is to militarize. It's really to, to protection for the comprador class against the unrest and the rise of the of the regular population and then can do it in the guise of trying to fight terrorism or anything. But really these things also these equipment is also used against the domestic population. When there when there's demonstrations and whatnot, we can see, you know, whether it be in Nigeria or Guinea, they attack those populations with their with these weapons. Not just weapons, but there's training and everything. This thing has become such it's really interesting in their pursuit of dominance and they're resorting to militarization. There's sort of a, a, a seduction that comes that they've even surmised, and this is how neoliberalism as a result works. They've even surmised that their measures used to control, to contain and control are profit-making measures. The defense department, the defense, so-called defense contractors and whatnot make money off of the actual attempt or actually need for them to control uh, the, the populations in various countries. I think it's important that we always keep um, Haiti. You know, we don't talk about a lot of things, but Haiti gets gets uh, pushed to the back burner all too often. Ex-U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti, Dan Foote, sends special forces to Haiti or 25,000 troops. Uh, Dan Cohen has a great article. It is in Mint Press News where he talks about Dan Foote basically saying, you know, um, we should either uh, is saying we've got to deal with the gang problem through either training, you know, some, I guess, kill squads or murder squads or whatever they would they would they would be um, to go in and fight them or just another invasion sending troops to Haiti. Um, your thoughts on, uh, on 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 the situation in Haiti and what Dan Foote's calling for, John Mubaraka. Uh, Dan, yeah, he's, they're, they're calling, they're setting up the scenario for another intervention, a direct intervention into into Haiti. Um, and as you said, Garland, this is a an area that uh, does not receive uh, sufficient attention from progressive and left forces. Um, and but that has to be, has to has to be uh, reversed. Uh, one of the things that uh, that uh, I know that uh, Jamima uh, Pierre um, and the uh, BAP Haiti America's team is attempting to do is to in fact bring attention to this 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 situation, but also to address why we don't have more attention. And that is this this idea, this almost subconscious position uh, that that many on the left will uh, adopt that Haiti is just beyond the pale. That uh, is is Haiti is a, a nation of of chaos. Um, and, and, and as, as Pierre uh, refers to them, a nation of savages you know, in the mind and in the imagination of many uh, Westerners. So this has to be reversed because we can't make the demands for Haiti uh, self-determination, Haiti independence, 
uh, without addressing those kinds of white supremacist notions. Because what Haiti needs is not more intervention. It needs self-determination. It needs for these, uh, these, these, these nations, the core group, the UN, um, to the US, uh, to withdraw from Haiti and to allow the Haitian people themselves to address their internal issues. But instead, we see a scenario being uh, created that will garner popular support for another invasion of Haiti. And that has to be dealt with. Your thoughts on Haiti, Netfa Freeman? I mean, I, I have, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention what I just, we just got finished doing here in Washington, D.C., um, is that uh, um, a few of us, a small group of us, delivered a letter to the chairman and the chair um, of CARICOM. And this is the president of Suriname uh, and also the president of uh, Antigua and Tobago and Barbuda. And we just delivered the letter because one of the things that this Suriname, I mean, I'm sorry, CARICOM is also allowing itself to be buy-in to this notion that some sort of direct intervention is needed to bring, you know, as, as the Jamu said, the, the, what the, the black savages under control and that there's not, and to the to the neglect of understanding how Haiti got into that situation and what's continuing the situation, the perpetuating the situation, the this un, these unelected bodies, uh, the the imposition of Ariel Henry as the president, and the imposition of the core group, you know, to control Haiti, and the the, the fact that there's people in the streets that are very clear on different neoliberal measures that are affecting their lives. For example, the, the taking away of subsidies for fuel and oil, which is and now putting the price of raising the price of oil and fuel energy, you know, that people need uh, past their past their uh, average income, way past their average income. And this is what's in the and the uh, unrest behind the demonstrations, but yet the media, the imperialist media and the corporate rest will have us believe it's just nothing but a bunch of uncontrollable gang violence without recognizing the the effects and the Im- impact of the imperialist, you know, imperialist machinations on the, on the country. So anyway, we, we delivered this letter and we want CARICOM to understand this. The letter was addressed to the secretary general of uh, CARICOM, the community, the Caribbean community. And that the secretary general is Dr. Carla Natalie Burnett. But we wanted the the chair. We wanted to use you know the physical delivering of the letter on behalf of the, these embassies, these embassies to these embassies on behalf of their countries, so that they make sure that they're on point. That they you know Caricom has taken some positions, some correct positions, of, uh, standing up for self determination and criticizing imperialism. And we we want them to be to hold that same position when it comes to to, to Haiti and not allow themselves to be duped into this these uh this notion these racist notions that Haiti needs some sort of uh, more intervention which is actually the reason why it's in the situation that isn't it thank you very much and i think here's another uh, uh article we really need to talk about amidst the biden administration's forever wars policy in africa the black alliance for peace launches a month of action against africom usa african command don't forget you can go to blackallianceforpeace.com for more information let's start with you ajamu baraka bap the black alliance for peace is saying out of africa with a- out of africa with africom your thoughts Exactly. That uh, and brother Nefer can speak to this more uh, effectively than I can. That uh, the, this month of action is, is in place. 
to uh, call attention to the existence of this U.S. military command in Africa. Uh, many people don't realize that uh, this command exists. They don't realize that the U.S. in its uh, arrogance has divided up the world and created uh, these regional demands uh, where they can intervene. intervene. Uh, many people don't realize that the U.S. has over 800 to 1,000 bases worldwide. Uh, they don't realize that these bases and its command structures is part of the imperial order, that the U.S. is, in fact, an empire. So, uh, Brother Netfa and the African team, they are, are putting in place a, a week, a week, a month of activity to bring uh, more attention to this situation. Netfa, your thoughts? Yeah. And so, and then the, the Africa itself is also subject to the same racist stereotype as Haiti that we just got finished talking about. That hey, Africa needs these interventions, needs the, the needs the military intervention of the NATO forces, and that people don't really know that you know just that that it's the U.S. that determines who are uh, combatant enemy enemy combatants and and you know terrorist militants and whatnot, and that they will be bombing Africa through drone strikes and everything else. Just last a couple of weeks ago, when 27 people they killed and and dismissed as okay, these are you know these are combatant militants that needed to needed to die. No no trial, no nothing. And that Africa is in the situation is. And so we're trying to a lot of people don't know about AFRICOM. And so we're trying the month of action is designed to help people know about AFRICOM. We're starting off to um Saturday, October first with a webinar, the uh, colonial colonialism comprators and the militarized capitalist crisis in Africa. We, and people should go to blacklastrepeat.com for more information about that. The number of teachings that we're trying to do and then uh, that we want people to do, we have on the website, there's a website dedicated to the month of action where we have all of the tools necessary for people to do the direct actions, the teach-ins, and the tap into the webinar where some of the direct action, the suggested direct action is a banner drop where people, you know, drop a banner someplace highly visible where people can understand and can see and, and pay attention and find out, oh, ask questions about what is AFRICOM and what is this uh, that this, people are demonstrating. And so we have to first raise awareness. We need, we know that to stop, get the U.S. out of Africa and to stop AFRICOM, we need a massive international uh, movement for anti, you know, U.S. militarization movement. And that we also have to, and uh, tie up, you know, have people recognize that this movement is inextricably bound with the movement against the war on our people everywhere, even in the United States. AFRICOM and even like the 1033 program that militarizes our communities is our counterparts. And we got to see them as one and the same. And we got to see our strategy to end them both as one and the same. Evo Morales, quote, there is a democratic revolution throughout all of Latin America and the Caribbean. You know, recently, I think something very important we saw, um, uh, Colombia and Venezuela, there's a lot of work going on and they've reopened their border. It seems to be uh, a, a, a lot of great things going on in, in in Latin America and the Caribbean. Of course, we talked about Haiti. They need more attention. But your thoughts on Evo Morales's comments, Ajamu? I think, um, yeah, uh, Morales um, um, reflected in his comments the reality of what is unfolding uh, throughout uh, our region, that the, the progress of, of progressive forces is basically irreversible. Uh, but that does not mean that the, the U.S. 
and the other uh, imperialist, uh, European imperialist countries are not going to continue to try to undermine uh, people's democracy uh, in this region. Um, so it's important that, that people understand that there's this kind of thrust, that uh, even though we are facing certain kinds of objective conditions in the U.S., we are part of the Americas. We are part of a, uh, this global uh, and regional system. Uh, and therefore, the contradictions that it has generated um, uh, from its, its neoliberal phase uh, in the U.S. Uh, and throughout the regions uh, are creating uh, a, 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 an oppositional movement uh, that uh, is not going to be easily um, defeated uh, by the uh, uh, Western uh, ruling class. Uh, and, and that's what uh, Morales is, is, is speaking to, that this, this oppositional activity is reflected in the progressive uh, taking of power in various states uh, in Latin America. It is reflected in the strengthening of various social movements uh, throughout the uh, Americas. And it's reflected in the, the, the developing consciousness of people, understanding the contradictions of, of this colonial capitalist system and understanding that they're not going to be able to solve the problems that they face without a real uh, change. And that change has to be in the form of a real social revolution. So he's speaking to the, what is happening here in the region. This region, I believe, is, is leading the way. Um, and uh, the, 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 uh, the, the force of what is happening, the model of this region, uh, is, is a positive force and model for the entire uh, global uh, humanity. And I also think that for we see with with the Evo Morales the danger. And here's what I mean: the U.S. tried to overthrow that government to steal their lithium, and the people of Bolivia took uh, their government back. But with the revolutionary movements all throughout the global South, it's getting more difficult for the U.S. to exploit countries and for the and you know for the the empires to and, and colonialist powers to exploit the resources of the. Um, countries of people of color, let's be honest, and they're getting more and more and more desperate and dangerous. But but it, it seems like that we are past the point of no return. They're not going back to neoliberalism. Net for Freeman. They're not going back to neoliberalism. And as well, my brother John said, our, our adversaries against neoliberalism, I mean, against uh, the, the, uh, the participatory democracy and the left movement is sweeping, they're not going to allow that to happen so it's a very it's a dangerous situation but also as the the forces and particularly in this hemisphere you know exercise more self-determination and real mass or participatory democratic control you you have examples and they're going to they try to contain it several ways that one in the u.s they want to and anywhere they want to pump us with their propaganda completely bombard us with with uh contrary with things that are contrary to the truth for example cuban cuban for example cuba is seen as if they want to try to say it's dictatorship authoritarian and all that but then contrary to this propaganda we just saw cuba pass a mass referendum on the family code and the way they did this mass referendum exercise all the people involved in it and and people in the united states can't get any referendum on anything affecting our lives there's no national referendum in the u.s but yet the country that has referendums mass referendum is uh, is is condemned as authoritarian and this country that is really nothing but an oligarchy 
and the uh, and the dictatorship of the ruling class is seen as supposed to be propped up as a model for democracy. So there, in just the truth in itself, uh, makes them you know have to they they can't really sustain the truth. Uh, they can't sustain their, their what they're trying to sustain because in the truth, the truth comes through. And so it's really, you know, we just have to keep keep struggling and, and know that, you know, that we're going to prevail. You can go to BlackAllianceForPeace.com to find out a lot more about what's going on in some of the uh, a lot of the uh, peace movements that's happening. BlackAllianceForPeace.com. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all Monday right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out.